This episode of MBSing is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked me not to read an ad, so I'm just going to thank them for their constant friendship and support. Enjoy the show. I do my head toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? Hello, welcome to MBSing. I'm your host, Mary Beth Smith. My guest today is my friend Melzer, and he talks to me about his love of Wes Anderson, a love I can relate to. It means that a lot of this conversation is us just kind of going through film by film, unpacking things that we love about them, and kind of how it uh, fits into the timeline of Wes Anderson's career. Melzer is a part of the Muscular Clown Collective, and they j- recently released a web series called The Street Wizard's Apprentice that I've seen, and it's hilarious. They also recently went to FilmQuest, a festival in Provo, Utah, where they won Best of the Fest for web series. Best web series of of the whole film quest fest that is so cool and i'm so happy for them uh if you'd like to check out other episodes from members of theirs i might recommend most recently drew creels where we talked about the fermi paradox get a sense of what it is these boys love and what they bring to the table when they make things together i think that definitely was one of the more fun parts of this conversation for me I was talking to someone who is a filmmaker or an aspiring one at the very least and kind of picking Melzer's brain about what he knows about the filmmaking process and how Wes Anderson approaches it versus how that may be different for a lot of other filmmakers. It's a great conversation, especially for Wes heads out there. Maybe if you've never really been a fan of his, you can find out what it is that people love about him so dang much. If you would like to see more from Melzer, I strongly encourage you to watch The Street Wizard's Apprentice. It's just really, really fun and funny, and the effects are amazing, and they make some really interesting decisions in uh, shooting and editing that Melzer admits some are inadvertently inspired by Anderson's movies. So maybe it'll be a fun task for you to find things that were inspired there. You know what I'm saying? If you like this, you may also like Cinema Jaw, another podcast in the Chicago Podcast Co-op, along with MBSing. Matt Kay does a great job of uh, bringing that whole show together. He was on some recent episodes of the Nerdalogs Your Stories, so if you would like to hear him speak to movies in that medium you can seek out the most recent episode of your stories but also you can just go check out cinema jaw for yourself if you enjoy this conversation about wes anderson i would assume that might be something you would enjoy as well if you would like to see a live show might i recommend this friday night at 10 o'clock at the greenhouse theater center here in chicago you can see cards against humanity live that is a bunch of improvisers being broken into pairs taking all the white cards from cards against humanity and letting our host uh choose the black cards uh and dictate which white card pairing of improvisers gets to start a series of scene inspired by that round of cards. You may even hear your card used at some point during the game that inspires the improv scenes. Makes sense? It's a very good time, I assure you. 
I would also encourage you to check out any Thursday night at 9.30, The Fishbowl at the Annoyance Theater. Thursday nights, 9.30, improv, especially geared towards students of improv. You can come and put your student ID into our fishbowl and get an opportunity to play with some more seasoned veteran improvisers, directors, teachers from around the city. It's also a good time. I guarantee it. I don't know how I could just throw around all these guarantees. I'm confident. Last but certainly not least, I should mention that uh, around the end of the conversation, we started to kind of have this sidebar about other filmmakers who we felt kind of had some things that in their films that made us think about Wes Anderson. And one that we neglected to mention that Melzer was... Uh, lamenting after the conversation was Brothers Bloom, Ryan Johnson's second major film. You also have Adrian Brody in there. Totally a one-to-one as far as I'm concerned. Great movie. Check it out. Enjoy this conversation. Before we really leap in, I want to ask why you felt the desire to also discuss failure. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I felt like I even failed at uh, choosing a topic because I was like, I'm so original. No one would do failure. Um, I think I was like, oh, for a lot of a long time in my life, I was really afraid of failure. And I did a lot of things to like hedge bets so that I wouldn't fail, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at a certain point. Uh, I realized that I failed already way too much in life to like ever turn back on that. And then I started, um, uh, you know, I just started, uh, do you know like the, uh, John Darnell from the Mountain Goats? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, a lot of his songs are about failure, yeah, uh, which sure. is great. And he has much more to say about it than I ever would. <laughs> but one thing that I noticed about him was like how unprecious about his work he was like he basically just recorded every song in like a hotel and then threw it out on an EP I, I still find EPs I thought I had his whole discography wow. and I don't um, I don't think anyone could I think like some of them are like literally lost wow um, but I was thinking about that and like how I spend so much time like just kind of like afraid no one's gonna like it and I just I hide behind working on it longer uh, so I don't know I, I thought I could I thought I could fill an hour talking about sure. how you should just embrace the fact that you're a failure and you're always going to disappoint your parents and just move on. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm glad I asked because I was interested in seeing where you're coming to it from. And I think that's a really, really important thing to keep in mind for creatives is that I think so much stuff just goes undone because Mm -hmm. of fear, just purely out of fear and self-preservation and... I have friends who are inordinately successful already in many, many ways who still do things like that to themselves, who like don't quite follow through on something just out of self-preservation. And from the outside, it's like, what are you doing? And from the inside, it's all just fear of failure. Totally. Absolutely. So, And even if you like, when you're in the moment, like whatever the failure moment is for whatever you're doing, like for me, it's like I've put it in front of someone and they're like, oh, that sucked. Sure. Uh, that's not really that bad of an outcome. Like, if you if you did it and it sucks and you showed it to a bunch of people and everyone's like, wow, that sucks. I mean, just make a new thing. Exactly. But if you never get to that point, if you're just hiding behind never finishing it, then, like, that could just be your life. You never learn anything out of the process of making the thing that sucked. 
Right. Like at the very least, you make a thing that sucks. People don't really like it. And you didn't have a good time making it. And then you just realize that you shouldn't have been doing that in the first place, you know? Totally. Or you figure out a bunch of shit that you can fix and do better and learn from and have a good time along the way and make everything after that better, you know? Yeah. It's it's a really hard thing to... Uh, learn and drive through as a creative. So I, I am also sure we could have had a great conversation. We could have, but that's about not it. what we're talking about. But that's not where we're talking about. Talking about someone who's never failed in his life. <laughs> that can't be true. I but. don't know. I, <laughs> I've, I've been, I've been trying to find it. You know, like uh, other directors, Edgar Wright. You can see there's some episodes of Space that aren't good. You can watch yeah. his first film, and you're like, oh, okay, you were learning there, huh? Uh, but like. He just comes out of the gate so strong. It's 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 uh, frustrating. So my guest today is Melzer, and we're going to talk about who he believes a director who has no failures to his record, Wes Anderson. First of all, what's the origin of your love of Wes Anderson? I think the first film that I saw was Royal Tenenbaums. Mm-hmm. I I believe it came out when I was in high school, but I don't know how accurate that, that would be. Two thousand and four. Right. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it came out and then, or at least it was in Blockbuster around that time, and I found it. And uh, it was around a time where I'd already kind of gotten the filmmaking bug, mm. and the this film was just so unique. Um, I don't know if it was, like, at the time I really responded to anything, like, on a deeper level. Like, I wasn't having, like, family issues like that, and no one was really calling me a genius or anything. Right. So uh, I, didn't, I didn't relate there, but it was, like, it was just so perfectly... Uh, a novel turned into a film. Uh, you know, you know, there was like the simple ways where they just did like the uh, first page of a story mm. and then would go into it. But even the way that the characters uh, kind of interacted, it's the only film like it that I really feel like I got on the same level as like a book that I would have read where um, characters are kind of not doing or speaking about anything and I'm still like engrossed with them just walking down the street. Um, yeah, it's a really, I think that was his first film that I saw as well, actually. So I don't know if that's a universal experience of people kind of discovering him, maybe at least for our generation, maybe some people who are a little older than us would have already gotten into like a Rushmore or a bottle rocket or something like that. I do know it was his first like real, I mean, not that like out of the gate, he wasn't like already acclaimed but right uh it, it was the first thing that he got like a lot of big name actors in and i think it was up for something i want to say best screenplay i think you're right um so it was probably his like and probably for a while up until now uh one of his bigger um endeavors no i think i think life aquatic was his biggest for a long time he's he's regretted that in interviews really? before yeah um but no, I think it was like his m- biggest financial success. Like I think oh. it had the biggest um, like box office for a long time. Yeah. I think he's beaten that probably by now. I bet you're right on both accounts that that was the first one that really started getting returns. Yeah. And until, you know, Grand Budapest is probably the big. I would assume something like that. Yeah. This is where I was like worried about doing this podcast. It's oh. like, I love Wes Anderson. I'm not sure I know anything about him. That's perfectly <laughs> all right. So many people say that about something that they bring to the table. And I think one 
you surprise yourself with how much you actually do know just because you don't know all the tiny little mm-hmm. details it's not a big deal and two I enjoy more the engagement of what it is that you like about it and Great. not just rattling off details so that's okay good that's a because I did not prepare every uh, like his full timeline of his life and you're just going to regurgitate information um, but so you asked like what was the thing that really hooked me yeah um, it was Rushmore though really uh, yeah so I saw Rushmore afterwards because I was just you know, I was in that blockbuster life where, you know, like yeah. there's just a period of time where all you would do is get a movie, turn them in and get the same number of movies back every <laughs> yeah. every week. Um, and I was doing that and I saw Rushmore. Especially probably someone who already considered himself a cinephile, someone who was a big movie watcher. Yeah. Uh, that's such a hard – because like, I, I met so many people who I would have called cinephiles and they all like really um, artsier and more mm. pretentious stuff that I feel like I do. Mm. I feel like uh, – like I, I rented Terminator Two a lot. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> So you love movies, but you're not necessarily like uh a you know, a critical I don't know, but yeah. like Wes Anderson his films are like critical darlings, like people, Sure, yeah. sure, yeah. But you're not gonna dismiss a, a good action oh, film no, or anything. No. Yeah, and, and I also <laughs> You're love wearing bad a Robocop t shirt for God's sake. <laughs> Robocop is awesome. Uh, we could also talk about Robocop. But, um, no, so I really like instantly connected to Max Fisher in Rushmore. Uh, as like kind of cre- embarrassing it is to like look back on my life. Um, around that time, like I was uh, starting up a ton of clubs. Um, uh. I was always writing things. I was in like theater class and I was arguing with my per, uh, teacher all the time about like, let's, let's do something student written. Uh, <laughs> and he was not having it. Uh, the most Did you pitch uh, making movies into shows that your drama department could do? I did. Um, I, uh, <laughs> eventually, but this will all finally, like senior year, I won out getting my own filmmaking class that yes. uh, we got like a small grant from uh, Chesterfield County School to have like uh, one computer that had an editing program and uh, a camera. And as long as I did a documentary on the school at the end of the year, I got it A. Uh, And I just used that to uh, get my friends out of classes uh, because they had to be like taking interviews and then do my own uh, little stupid films. Uh, Oh my God. This is definitely like textbook Max Fisher. (laughs) Yeah. And I I was doing really bad with my grades. Yeah. You know, it's like- Something about I never saw a character who was um, putting out that much effort and seeing no return, uh, and that's what I kind of felt like my high school experience was. Also, you know, I was not dating. Right. Obviously, I dressed like an idiot, um, <laughs> uh, and I'm pretty sure I, if it wasn't for my like my core group of friends, uh, I probably alienated most people around me. Uh, luckily, my my core group of friends were like all the seniors, like Kyle, uh, yeah. who you know, which is not gonna make any sense to. Well, the past guests of the show, Kyle Tally, Kyle Santa. Tally talked about Santa yeah. a couple years ago. Delightful conversation. Oh, he's the best. So fun. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure if it wasn't for him, I would have had no friends because I was just so driven on doing this stupid stuff, uh, and then I never really like dropped out of that. But I also had never seen that guy on film before, or someone like that relatable. Um, you know, it, most other movies would have the character who's you, a go-getter, but they've also just kind of like nailing everything. Or yeah. um, if they aren't pursuing the typical path, uh, they take like a very 90s slacker approach to it. Yeah, I guess the only, I can, I'm thinking of 
like a Tracy Flick, but there's a little bit more. Well, I don't know who that is. Oh, Tracy Flick is the main character in Election. Reese Witherspoon. The um um uh, oh. Alexander Payne. I believe it's one of his first movies. Yes, with um. Ferris Bueller, or yes. what's his real name? Matthew he has a real name. Broderick. Right. He, but I would say Tracy, if you haven't seen Election, you absolutely should. Tracy Flick is a little more malicious than Max sure. Fisher is. And well, yes. he did almost crush someone with a tree. And when I thought that, I was like, well, Max is billed as less malicious than I think he actually is. He's pretty... Uh, Tracy Flick, there's some similarities there. I would encourage you to check out Election. Okay, yeah. Yeah. She's very like I, I've described Tracy Flick as um the bad timeline Leslie Nope. Like Ooh. like if Tracy Flick followed a good timeline, then she could maybe be Leslie Nope, but I don't think there was ever that like malicious a person in, in Leslie Nope's history. If I was a movie exec and you came in and you were like, I want to do a movie called Bad Leslie Nope, <laughs> I would green light it immediately. <laughs> I've thought that might help sell it. Yeah, no, that it does really sell is it. Like, it's kind of like, imagine if Leslie Nope was in high school, didn't have that many friends, but really, really wanted to win the high school presidential election. <sighs> that, yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to watch that. It's, that sounds like everybody's bad comic book pitch, which is always like, Batman, but he's evil. Yeah. Uh, but with Leslie Nope, and now I want to do it. Yeah, it's kind of like young Leslie Nope, but if she was evil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and uh, but that's really one of the only characters I can think of to even begin to compare. So sure, I yeah. understand why you were like, "Whoa, I've never, I've never seen this guy before." Yeah, and I think that's like, especially his older films. I know that uh, Wes Anderson has kind of moved into a more like um, folklorish level, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. his um, his like first, I want to say five films, uh, I found them all like really relatable at times in my life uh, that. I didn't expect to relate to something like that. Um, and Rushmore is what kind of kicked that off. Uh, later, I'll rewatch Royal Tenenbaums and, be, like, you know, during some family problems and be like, sure. oh, yeah, that is us. I do have dad issues. I was a genius. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, right. the dad issue thing is a thing that he gets accused of a lot. Uh, and I mean, it's fair. It's there. It's, yeah. it's in a lot of them, but there's a lot of other stuff going on. Sure. Yeah, so we'll I agree. stay away from dad issues. <laughs> Unless you want to talk about dad issues. No, I just okay. felt like it's a pretty big theme in Royal Tenenbaums. Oh, yeah. Um, what came after Rushmore? So was that kind of the thing that made you, you connected Royal Tenenbaums and Rushmore and went, Wes Anderson is a director that I need to be watching his films oh, yeah. kind of thing? Definitely. I mean, stylistically, uh, if we're just talking, you know, the whole stylist substance thing that everyone always like talks about when they bring him up. I was already hooked. I was hooked from, like, you know, the third scene of Royal Tenenbaums. But, uh, yeah, I started on a level that I've never injected into my own work and uh, <laughs> uh, don't have a lot of other filmmakers that I really see this in, but I was starting to connect on, like, a really deep personal level, and he was able to repeat it with almost, like, every movie he's done. Uh, I totally agree with you. It's really... It's kind of unmatched, I think. It's weird, because, like... The characters, you know, you see the opposite. Let's take like a Judd Apatow movie. And mm -hmm. it's like, this guy is like 80% of the people that you've met. He's just some schlubby dude who like didn't try very hard uh, in school. And he's going through something that like is extreme but relatable. Mm -hmm. And he's having friends the way you're, 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 you know, he's having conversations the way your friends do. Mm -hmm. You know, Kevin Smith is another guy who does like a lot of films that are, are like that. He like revolutionized that. Practically. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, you know, I love his films, but. 
Wes Anderson's giving you like some smarmy, vaguely New England, uh, like uh, fake person. Yeah. Uh, and somehow you're getting more relation to your own life out yeah, of it than you would. If, that's a really great observation. Uh, someone was actually doing it right. Yeah. yeah. That's a fantastic observation because you're totally right. It's people that are not real at all, but that you still absolutely relate to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like they have all these heightened uh, emotion or characteristics uh, that you can just like identify who that, like you knew who Max Fisher was. I mean, like he was more complex at times when the film goes on, but like after that montage of him just smugly being like, I'm in this club, I'm in this club, I'm in this club, you get the character yeah. and uh, then it kind of like takes you on a ride from there. I think one of the more extreme ones that I couldn't believe that I connected with at all was uh, like the Life Aquatic, like some weird other world American uh, Jacques Cousteau who's like aging out of his field. Right. And somehow I watched that and was like, that's a lot like my life. Wow. No, it's not. I (laughs) I have nothing. But I found, I I don't know if it's one of those things where everyone can look at his films and find the connection, the the mirror back Uh through all this weird uh, costume design and, uh, you know, um, uh, framing. Yeah, very geometric framing. uh, But I do at least. Uh, and I, enough people like it that I assume other people are getting that out of them. I think you're probably right. Yeah. What uh, was next? Do you remember what you saw after Rushmore? Was it? Well, yeah, I went and I saw um, uh, Bottle Rocket. And Bottle Rocket's his first film. If we're on the conversation of, is this guy a failure? It's like the closest thing to him messing one up. But right. I still I still love it. Yeah, it's good. Uh, yeah, it's just such a fantastical world again. Yeah. Uh, the... The, like the criminals wear yellow jumpsuits to like their their final like that's it's right. just like, that's just the world. He I was wish. already doing stuff like that. Yes, I think though if you look at that film in the time other films like that were coming out, that came out like ninety six. Mm-hmm. I think he did a short like it in ninety four, and this is the world of like Tarantino hitting it big with oh. Reservoir Dogs and uh, El Mariachi has just come out. And I think it's also like the one of the only films until Life Aquatic, uh, which uses guns in such a like a comical way, where there's like a crime element to yeah. it. And I wonder if that was like part of the hipness of the time. Mm. Like he was like, "Oh, I'm one of them. I'm doing that." Interesting. Yeah, it's like the closest thing, unless you get like really deep into like cinema, uh, that you can really be like, I think that's what he was trying to emulate a little bit there. Mm-hmm. Like, he still had his whole, you know, charming, uh, fantastical, fairy tale yeah. way of going through it, but I Introducing felt like... Introducing characters in a very specific way. I feel like that's a very Wes Anderson totally. uh, vibe is to be like, this is this person, you know, breaking down the whole crew. Yeah. I think that's still something he kind of does in Bottle Rocket. Absolutely, and I'm blanking on Owen Wilson's character's name, but the... Um, romanticized singular philosophy is mm. like such a character thing mm-hmm. uh, that he does. And I think that's also why it might be so related is because you could just like, if you took that character, that character, uh, if anyone hasn't seen the movie, was obsessed with being a criminal. He didn't come from a background where he needed money. He wasn't like a violent guy. He just had like crime in the sense of like heist in his head and was trying to put a crew together from the moment you meet him and he eventually does but like if you just took out like what that passion is for like how many people do we know that are like oh good comedy and you plug that in and like even though it might like ruin their life (laughs) they will pursue it until they are arrested yeah Uh, 
Yeah, there's absolutely people who are like, I have to put together my sketch group or mm-hmm. improv group because it's or all I want to do. A group of filmmakers and yeah. move to Chicago, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah, that's a really good way to kind of extrapolate his basic idea into something kind of more relatable in real world. And I think there's something too... Uh, to the fact that he was already working with the Wilsons mm-hmm. on his very first movie. I don't know much about the origin of their friendship or anything like that, but they have to have known one another before they made Bottle Rocket. Yeah, I think they went to college together. Um, uh, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. And I know Owen Wilson's credited with writing as a writing partner on a bunch of the first stuff. That's right. Um, but I, I don't know if the... I don't know if those brothers had an in with Hollywood or not. Yeah, because were did people know? Did Owen Wilson have a career to speak of before Wes Anderson? N- no, he okay. certainly didn't. But I think like they they have like a relative or like a dad who had something to do with it. Maybe. Um. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But, it, it, so that, but that may that... have helped them kind of go from making this movie that you know as so they made a short that then became bottle rocket yeah yeah there's a like a 15 minute bottle rocket uh shot in black and white oh i think you're right i think i'm right yeah i have a book right here that can tell me that that sounds familiar to me even as yes. less of a an aficionado uh that that these people who, like you said, probably had some kind of connection already, because that, that sounds familiar to me as well, were able to make a short and be like, hey, look at this. And somebody sure. was like, yes, we yeah. will make that into a full movie, you know? <laughs> right, like, right, right. If, if As long as you can do it for, like, super cheap yeah. and, yeah. Uh, so Bottle Rocket, it, was it interesting to go back and watch the first thing after you had seen kind of, I mean, Royal Tenenbaums, for all intents and purposes, in my mind, is like some of this like peak Wes Anderson in oh, terms I would of like agree. the cat, the ensemble cast, the nature of the storytelling, all of this stuff. It has the, every single trope anyone ever wants to say about him. Right. You know, just right there. He hasn't, yeah. And, and he may very well have done things that are more, uh, you know, higher reaching, larger scale, mm-hmm. things like that since then. But that was when he became peak Anderson yes yeah that's a good way of saying it and I think I had the same experience as you did which is that I saw that before I went back and saw Bottle Rocket and Rushmore how do you how did you come to those movies after you'd kind of already seen peak Anderson well um as obsessed I was with the filmmaking process, I was pretty uh, naive to seeing it. And I assumed Bottle Rocket's like lower production value or it's kind of like uh, the way the story isn't like, you know, go Quite, anywhere for a long yeah. portion of it. I assumed those were all like direct choices. That's really As funny. opposed to like him getting better. And I didn't even know that it was his first really. Yeah. Because like in my mind, I was just finding them. Right. Right, sure. Uh, and I wasn't like, you know, looking. I could have looked it up. There was an internet. Right. Uh, but but still early in, in the days of IMDb when you weren't really, you know, uh, pacing everything down a timeline. And he was kind of one of the first directors that 
is of more of our generation. Totally. Like we've kind of seen everything as it came out for the most part. Oh yeah. Uh, so he's one of those, one of the first people that we really would have even tried to track his career on, as opposed to like a Spielberg who already had. Oh yeah, you, you it know, just <laughs> it felt like he had always been there and will always be there. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. He was like Jesus. He was just <laughs> yeah. there was never a time before Spielberg. He's the alpha and the omega. Exactly. <laughs> uh, That's really funny to think that you you were giving him the benefit of the doubt without really meaning to. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Or it was more like. Um, I guess I also had, he was just on such a pedestal that I couldn't imagine it just be mistakes. Yeah. You know? That's really funny. Uh, the only film that I think I knew, because I was watching a lot of Kevin Smith, uh, a Quentin Tarantino around that time. The only mm-hmm. film that I knew was like, had problems because of its production capabilities was Clerks. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but yeah, I couldn't imagine any of these other things. They just seem so perfectly constructed. That's really funny. And his films are also pretty deceptive because like he does such a great job of, you know, putting the emphasis on like the art direction or the setup of the room or the costumes that like, even when production steps down a couple of steps when he's not getting as good of cameras or maybe having as many crew members to, to light and whatnot, it still feels like his movies. Yeah. You know? Whereas if you stripped away some of the the better stuff of from like um, Edgar Wright or maybe even um, Quentin Tarantino, like there might be a more dramatic uh, change. That's a really interesting take, especially when you think of something like Ant-Man. When I went to see it, I had this weird experience of being like, oh, that was Edgar's, you know? Uh-huh. There that were, wasn't? That was. Yeah. That wasn't? That was, yeah. There were things about that movie that were so Edgar Wright, and then as a whole, it wasn't really at all. Right. But all the stuff that worked the best was, oh, totally. <laughs> in my opinion. The guy's a genius. Yeah, um, you know, uh, that the bathtub sequence and the all the little... Um, is it Michael Pena who is the like sidekick guy who does all the flashbacks? Anyway, I think so. Yeah, but Wes Anderson also like his stuff. Um, and Rushmore is a great example because I think that one was supposed to feel this way. But they he has a very old approach to filmmaking that uh, kind of like it mimics a play in a way. Mm. So like as long as your story's good, he's and- very uh, theatrical. Not movie theatrical, but stage theatrical. Exactly. And he thinks very on a, um, a linear platform. Like, he very rarely gets in between people and cuts around. Interesting. Uh, and with, you know, a more uh, or a lighter um, production team, if as long as you have, like, a really strong visual style like he does, I feel like Bottle Rocket moving into his more, you know, elaborate ones it was a little bit more of a, this guy has a style constantly. And it's because, yeah. you know, he just kept it simple in a way. Edgar Wright without some of the bells and whistles would be hard to do. I mean, yeah. not like you could imagine a Scott Pilgrim without effects, but like imagine a Scott Pilgrim without effects, you know? It wouldn't be the same movie. Scott Pilgrim on the stage. Yeah, it, it wouldn't. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point that he, he almost has, uh, he has a style in his, the way he pairs things down. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Totally, his his um, approach to cinematography and sometimes even editing is like, or or camera movie. Yeah, I gotta be wrapped up in cinematography, but it, like it just keeping it really simple. Like he's turned having the camera on one subject, and then slowly panning it to the thing that they're looking at, 
part of his style. Yeah. Whereas like people threw that out in the 70s because they were like, what about all that dead time in the middle there? We should just cut to what we're seeing over there. But he takes you back through it. And that's just, you know. That's a really good point because like once editing became more of a thing, people stopped doing things like that. But then if if you make it a directorial choice. So do you know much about his process in terms of like writing a script? How much of that those kind of stylistic choices are are built into scripts how much like storyboarding he does and things like that well I've read a couple of his scripts storyboarding he does a crazy amount of I can't fathom how much storyboarding he does and his brother is um, I forget which one but is a collaborator on everything like this cover was his brother a lot cool. of like temp artwork? Uh, remember um, Richie's drawings? Yeah, all of right. that was his brother. Yes, okay. Um, I knew he always worked with the same artist, but I did. I wouldn't have known that it was his brother. So, well, it's his brother, and then there is a woman whose name I don't know who is his official like graphic designer. Cool. Um, who works out of uh, Ireland? Awesome. Uh, and I know because every year I'm like can I save up the money to send uh, my fiance there? Cause she's a graphic designer and I just think that'd be the best. That's awesome. Um, but it's a lot of money for like four days of uh, a class. But um, yeah, so he, in that stage and like uh, the scripts aren't really that much different than anyone else's, but his art direction approach is really uh, intense. That doesn't surprise me to hear. Yeah. It's just something where when I watch films that have a lot of, parts where there aren't dialogue and I, I mean you, you expressed that before even in like a slow turn from one person to another I always not always but can't find myself asking sometimes how much of that was initially set out especially when you're looking at someone who is a writer director right uh, you would think that they would have the capacity to write things like that into scripts but I'm sure with someone like him he's so visual based that there has to be a lot of work done in in storyboarding after the script process. Yeah, and I think the thing that really blows me away is how much it's like, it's you could take the work that they had done, and I, I wouldn't say you can make like a, a straight up comic book out of it, but you could make like an adorable children's book out of every one of his like pre-pro uh, stuff. Like this uh, textbook right here is loaded with it. Like uh, Richie's little like yellow um, tent that goes in the middle of that room. Like yeah. they knew the colors they want. I always picture like you know someone in like the art department. Like well you know we couldn't find yellow. We got a bunch of tents. Uh, and he's like no, it has to be made in the seventies and it has to be yellow. And then like you walks away from them. Know that working on like props and set design for his productions is a nightmare. Oh yeah, you have to know it's a nightmare. It's a yeah, it's a nightmare. But then so there's this other thing you always hear about about his film sets that is just like insane to me. So he apparently does like not as long of days as everybody else. Interesting. But he always does a wrap dinner every night and there's like a chef brought for the production. Whoa. So like the the cast and the crew have like what I imagine is this like, you know, weird intellectual, yeah. weird cuisine. How do you think today went? Yes, let's, <laughs> let's speak on film. Oh boy. Uh, and yeah, as that, pre- it's even so if pretentious. you don't have a long day, that still sounds so exhausting. I know, but I, w- I'm, I would die to be there. Right? I would, I'd give up my life just to see what that's like. You know there are people who get cast as films who are just like looking forward to those rap dins (laughs) and I love when directors work with similar actors and actresses each time they make a film I I just 
I, as someone who loves collaborative efforts, it fills me with joy to think of directors loving working with actors so much that they just like keep casting them. And totally. It, it, I, I just love it. You know, they have to have this like shared language at some point. Oh yeah. When they're working together. And he's one of the ones that just keeps growing people. Yeah. You know, like it, it almost seems like it goes in eras like. You know, you had your Jason Schwartzman was in everything mm-hmm. period of time, and now he still shows up from time to time, but Ed Norton's in everything. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's so cool. Ah. Uh, <laughs> I figured that you would have had to know at least a decent amount about his production process. I know, you know, as much as I've been able to figure out, he doesn't, yeah. like, put everything out on, on Front Street. I know that uh, I was baffled by one article i read once that was like he has he like never went to the studio where they were shooting um um fantastic mr fox and i don't think he never went i think they were just trying to like hyperbolically paint it as that he never went but basically he had a system where everything was everything is photos in a stop motion so he could just direct from wherever he was so he would just be like bumming around paris with a laptop in like cafes and you know just skype in like move it slightly to the left try it again great that's the framing right i'm wes anderson wow i know that is crazy he made a movie just by like looking at all i mean but that's basically how he makes movies otherwise i suppose but in that film he also did something cool with the um the audio which is he took everybody into the woods with boom operators and they acted it out So as instead of he like, he did not. He did, yeah. No, yeah. Way. You can watch video of like really crappy video of like um, George Clooney doing like a roll and standing up and then saying his line because that's what the that's character's supposed to do. Hilarious. Yeah. Holy shit! Thinking back on the movie, it does make sense because the audio isn't necessarily like crisp mic sounding audio. Right. It's not necessarily that it sounds bad. It just, it does feel pretty environmental and natural. Sure. Isn't he making another stop motion? Isle of Dogs, right? I, hope I believe right. you're right. Yeah, yes. I hope that's right. Yeah, I, yes. Be embarrassing to be the guy who came on the talk about Wes Anderson and not know his curtain one. It's Isle but, of Dogs. Uh, I, watched, I watched the trailer. I was trying not to, but oh, I couldn't help myself. I did not watch the trailer. Uh, Is it, does it, what do you think, what's your first take? Oh, I mean, like, um, I'm very curious how he's going to melt. I mean, I know he'll pull it off. Yeah. But basically, uh, so the dogs can speak English. Okay. So they're all Japanese dogs who've been, like, thrown onto a, an island because there's, like, something wrong, like, post-apocalyptic level wrong. Okay. Um, so all these dogs are basically kicked off into this, like, trash island. Um, but all the dogs speak English, which I guess will just be, like, we can hear it, but that is you know, how dogs communicate. Right. And then uh, one boy from Japan comes over to find his dog, and all the dogs are like, that's adorable, we should help him. Uh, so they help him. But the dogs and him can't communicate seemingly through an English to Japanese uh, language barrier, I believe. That's really um, funny. Yeah, it seems pretty cool. Okay. I'm happy that he's back in stop motion again. Yeah, I mean, I loved Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, yeah. It's really interesting to see his movie in a totally different medium. Mm-hmm. And it still feels just like a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, it, it, it's weird. I almost feel like he's more traditionally set up to be an animation director. I can like, see it. All the things that we talk about uh, about his style, like, kind of lend themselves to that medium anyway. Hmm. Um, but the the fact that he did it live action is what makes him so, you know, specifically unique. What? 
kind of came between uh we haven't talked too much about anything like post Tenenbaums pre Fantastic Mr. Fox and I feel like what else is in there? Darjeeling? Darjeeling Life Aquatic. Uh Darjeeling Life Aquatic. Then I think it might be Fantastic Mr. Fox. Because then I think Moonrise right. was his first after that. I think you're right. Yeah. How do, most people consider Darjeeling to be one of his weakest films. Yeah. Like, uh, well, so it's like, what are people like doing when they do stuff like that? Like, I guess everyone wants to rate everything. Right. Uh, and that's their like prerogative and that's fine. Sure. Uh, I, I, it's it's growing on me the more uh, that's becoming all the conversations I have with people is yeah. like like uh, what what are those like Marvel things that come out like the Marvel uh, like Daredevil or like Jessica Jones I can tell you how many people were like oh you watch that one I think the other one's better and it's uh, like well, like what is what are we doing like are we are trying we, to just should I only be watching the ones that you think are good right yeah should, right or is like does everything need to be like hyper compared for right. us to have some kind of like but when it comes to that movie, I didn't like it the first time that I watched it. Uh, and I think, so I rewatched it a bunch of times recently, and now I love it. Uh, <laughs> That's more where I was coming from than anything else. Sure. Because I'm with you. If you like a thing, great. It doesn't really necessarily matter if it's better or worse than... The other thing, so like, uh, it, I think it's just a right. Way these are creative that, pursuits. It's not like, right. uh, well, he didn't bench as much this <laughs> yeah. time as he benched the last time. You know, like, there's no numerical <laughs> there's way of not being like someone a quantifiable, won. Yeah, yeah. You're just basically saying you responded to something more or less. Like, it's you a, know, it's a pitfall of Rotten Tomatoes. Honestly, uh, it's like yeah. uh, people just pit but a, a conglomeration of positive reviews versus a you know a less like. A thing that got slightly less positive reviews, but like right. maybe was more divisive, you know? So uh, I have a friend, Drew, who has two brothers. Uh, and he was the one who told me that he really liked the movie and that oh. I should rewatch it. And then I was like, Darjeeling okay. Limited being a film about, about a man with two brothers. Yes. Or th- about three brothers. Three brothers. We should say. Yeah. It's, it's really great because it's like. Um, and also, a lot of things with Wes Anderson's films, uh, I think we like we skipped over. Uh, Life Aquatic, but like when I first watched Life Aquatic, I was just like, cool jumpsuits, funny lines, boats, I love it. Yeah. Then I felt like a big old failure for like, you know, a bunch of years. And like I did a bunch of things oh, that I thought like. And you came back to it. And then I came back to it and I was like, I know what it, I oh, went through these man. like weird emotions where I'm mad at everybody yes. and jealous of people's normalities and, uh. Oh, so, I just got chills legit. I oh. totally get that. <laughs> like, there really is something to. Being able to watch a movie from a different place, like emotionally and maturity wise, yeah, that you just didn't weren't gonna see when you and, saw it, and the especially first time. with his films, like his films are so like the, the subtext is is or maybe that's not even the way of saying it. The text, like the theme yeah. of the movie, is so extreme, uh, and that like uh, live aquatic movie about like. Uh, you know, think thinking you've reached your pinnacle, and then well, I mean that movie's really about a guy who had accomplished his pinnacle for many years and then slipping down. But I was able to relate it in my life of like thinking I was gonna do something that was like that's it, I've done it, and then it didn't work out the way that I want, and then like just slowly sliding back down that hill. Like, am I gonna be nothing now? Uh, and that when I rewatched it, then that became like my favorite for forever. Wow. Um, but I recently watched Darjeeling a bunch. And I feel like that's a film that, like, you can't appreciate unless you've had, like, lost to the point that you've been, 
like broken and you have to like repair yourself back from that yeah because like that movie is about three brothers who are taking a ton of drugs like it's it's kind of like it's not brushed over but like what they're all they're doing is they have like these weird eyedroppers and it's like uh oh that's indian um painkillers and they're just loading themselves up on drugs uh and dressing in their dad's old clothes and uh each lying to themselves about what's going great in their lives when really they're all just so broken up that their dad passed away. Right. And uh, when I watched it the first time, I didn't really like catch any of that. I was just kind of like, oh, man, his cinematography is cool in a train. Right. And that was about it. Right. But, and honestly, there's that one time they, they flash back to New York in the middle of that movie. Uh, and I was like, man, I would have liked that to be the movie because it's like it, it felt like the Royal Tenenbaums for a second oh, when he was running around New York again. Sure, but yeah, I really, I really like that movie. I really like all his movies. Honestly, he has never failed. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he failed a bunch before he made Bottle Rocket, and we just don't, we never saw him. Maybe. I, it, so like, we live in a, a time now where everyone's like shooting digitally, you right? Know, and we can shoot a lot, right? But he. I mean, maybe he shot on VHS. Did he go to film school? Like, what? How did I, he make that movie so well the first time around? Uh, well, I mean, divine intervention uh, <laughs> is what I'm going to assume. Hold on, let me pull up his Wikipedia. I forgot yeah. what school he went to. I know it's like a classic Texas one. Like, I don't think it's an art school. Okay, well, when he was a kid, apparently he used to use a Super 8. Just found that out. Yeah, University uh, of Texas at Austin. Yeah. So. Interesting though that he's from that he has Austin ties because I feel like I associate that with like a quirky aesthetic for some reason. (laughs) I can agree with that. And whenever I feel like you point out that he's from Texas, people are like, "What are you talking about?" Because like he feels like he feels like human Vermont. You know, (laughs) like he feels like he should just be up in this weird elite, yeah, uh, sweater wearing culture, right? Uh, Tennis and summer camps and yeah, exactly, yeah. But he came from Houston, Texas. I don't really know. That is really interesting. Was he just like so wealthy he got to live the Vermont lifestyle in Texas? Or yeah, I when I saw Moonrise Kingdom in theaters, I went oh. Uh, this might be my new favorite Wes Anderson movie, and it goes back to that like ranking thing. But for me, I still oh I hold on, I'm always down for favorites. Okay, I, I was going to make that differentiation. I, yeah, I don't like people. I just get and and it's just something that's like recently been annoying me. But yeah. like I just get upset when people are like, no, I don't know, that one sucked out yeah. of a group of them. It's like you're I don't know if you're just like lumping the whole film and then throwing it away especially when he does so much good like Darjeeling compared to how much shit gets made like how many Avengers movies are we gonna get like get and Darjeeling gets to exist like that's already a win totally I was going to say that as well is is it's easy to say oh this just isn't Wes Anderson's best when you could compare it to hundreds of other movies thousands of other movies that it's still better than yeah i I equate it to like imagine like winning something like uh like yeah i don't know you went to the olympics like i don't know if a film is that hard but a film is pretty hard so we're just going to use that as the term but you go to the olympics and you placed in the top five Uh you know and Uh it's like i don't know last time you placed in the top three yeah, it's like right. okay, great. Like, yeah. Well, I couldn't have done any better than gold. You know. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Eventually, there's a peak, and yeah. now we're just choosing peaks. Right, yeah. right, right, right. But, uh, but I, I did. I just there was something about the him working with true 
child characters for the first time. Oh, yeah. That was nuts. It uh, felt like it should have been happening the whole time. Right? I mean, it, there's a couple times it has happened. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, like the opening of Tenenbaums and sure. stuff. But even that was fucking amazing. Like, it right. felt so fairy. I mean, his work always feels very fairy tale like and it was just great seeing little kids running around in there. I loved it. There's something so playful and fun and new and man Ed Norton as the oh, yeah. head of the scouts and all this stuff that just worked so well for me uh, there was a moment when I watched it uh, I, I went with some other people who had been in the Boy Scouts and like some older people who had been in the Boy Scouts their whole life and you know that like scene when they said that they heard someone stab someone oh yeah uh, and they like the adults are like hey that was the girl <laughs> people clapped in the theater that I was with <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I thought that was great. No way. Yeah, that's really interesting too. Anytime a filmmaker can inspire a visceral response in an audience, I yeah. think is kind of a success. Oh, it's totally a success. I think so. In that film, that film might be the start of where I would say he go. He's gone more into like a fantastic world and less into our own. Like he's yeah. like that's maybe where he broke being very relatable with his films. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but that film still, I mean, as far as the Boy Scouts go, there are so many things throughout it that are like, oh, that is so the Boy Scouts. Like when all the Boy Scouts are like, hmm, we better all get weapons. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that's happened every time I ever went camping with them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really delightful movie. And especially the finale is something that I didn't really Ooh. feel like we had seen in a Wes Anderson movie before because he really leans into how fantastical mm -hmm. it is and it becomes even cartoonish at points yeah that i and he builds a tension expecting. that he he very rarely goes for like even the films that have it he makes sure to flatten it at the end yeah and this one felt extreme all the way up until yeah. it was like wrapped i was genuinely you know, the stakes felt high. Yeah. Yeah. And I would agree that that's not necessarily the case in his work up to that point. Yeah. I'm trying to like rack my brain for Maybe. one. I feel like uh, when they're, uh, what's his name? Eli Cash is like, just killed that dog in Tenenbaums. Yeah. And, and uh, Ben Stiller's character is just trying to catch him. Right. Yeah. Like that was a pretty intense, like that had the same kind of like flowing to it, but uh -huh. that, that's not as like as extreme as are these little kids going to die? And it also doesn't take on the whole energy of the movie, you know, yes, the yeah. finale of, of Moonrise Kingdom is like you said, like there's genuine peril for like everyone involved. Whereas that's just like one storyline kind of has these right. pretty intense stakes and everything came to a head. Uh, with everyone's storyline in Moonrise Kingdom right there. Like, right, it's right. Everything wraps up. Yes. Uh, whereas, you know, um, there's a huge preamble to the end of Royal Tenenbaums. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and what about, we've I've, we've kind of naturally uh, talked through Look at almost us. everything. I know. What about Grand Budapest Hotel? Oh, amazing. Incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. I can't, like, <sighs> It's weird because I don't have the same response to it as I do his older films where I was like, yes, you said that and I get it. Right. Uh, but this one is like aesthetically my favorite. It yeah. is just so goofy and fun. And I think uh, Eric, my fiance, considers it, if not one, one of his favorites, perhaps his favorite. But I think it's hard for him to compare to 
Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> That's another thing. It's like I'm afraid that I'm just being like held by my like childhood nostalgia. Like, right. is is Rushmore my favorite because I like, connected to it so much, right. or is it you know? But uh, it's also very hard to compare them now because it has all the same stylings as a Wes yeah. Anderson, but they are completely so different. So different. Yeah. That movie and it was really interesting for you to say that you felt like it kind of broke from relatability because there is a, a definite difference between a Life Aquatic and a Darjeeling Limited to a Moonrise Kingdom and mm-hmm. a Grand Budapest Hotel. The scale is really different and the the fantastic nature of it is really different. But there are some really emotionally gripping things oh, in yeah. Grand Budapest Hotel. Absolutely. I, I guess the, the way I'm trying to frame it in my head now is like when you get to Grand Budapest, it's like a film, or it's like it's like a story that like should have always existed, or it, like yeah. it feels like timeless, cool. yeah, or like a like a like a French play that uh-huh. you you should have already kind of known the outcome <laughs> of, and yeah. all the yeah those films or those stories they always have relatable things to them, uh-huh. um, but there was something modern about the problems faced in his older films yeah. that like this film doesn't really have like okay. true love is a is a thing that they they deal with a lot in Budapest uh-huh. and like. Um, um, uh, lust and greed and whatnot, but yeah. like those are those are timeless. Whereas like, uh, oh no, no one wants to buy my film anymore, and I have to like stop driving around on my boat is like such a nineteenth century yeah. thing. I don't know. That's really funny. Uh, I I I didn't mean to like uh, you know uh, take down that hypothesis because I think there's. There's truth to it. I'm just kind of like continuing to unpack it. More, oh well, yeah. If, more if than there anything. is a, if you need to take it, if you find the flaw, you should take it down, and then we can have a better <laughs> hypothesis. Yeah, it, it is. It does seem like he's become a little bit more epic in his yes. undertakings. Oh yeah. Uh, with with those two in particular, and definitely. More so than just like three brothers on a train, it's you know a hotel, and there's like you said, kind of love lost and found. And there's a hotel, there's like a secret society right. of hotel owners, yeah, yeah. It's it's such a great world, yeah. Uh, the- w- Willem Dafoe is like the serial killer going around essentially, like, yeah, he's like you know doing it for financial reasons, but like he's doing some really messed up things, right? Oh, I just remembered the finger oh, thing, yeah. yikes! Yeah, I think you nailed it though. That he in those films, he's more creating a world mm-hmm. as opposed to. It kind of just framing a small part of a world that we already know exists. Right. So it's like, oh, here's this, you know, uh, kid in a high school, or here's this guy who wants to be a, a career criminal. Criminal. Yeah. Or this uh, guy who used to be a Jacques Cousteau type, but is kind of falling down on his luck versus like, oh, this camp exists in a place where all these people just exist in a world where all these things are normal. (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah. Like you can have this giant cabin on the tiniest light or the thinnest tree. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Or, uh, right. (laughs) People, what what is that thing that uh, he does? He like, he grabs Harvey Keitel uh, and jumps like, 
I love that moment. Right. And, and or like you said, there's a society of people who run hotels and like, oh, yeah. it's just, it's almost like he's zooming out, but he still has the same aesthetics and small moments and right. characters and things like that. Yeah. He's just, he's just moving into like a new um, type of storytelling, mm-hmm. I think. And he's keeping all of his, you know, things in his color palette. He's just now yeah. working with stuff that can be a little bit more bonkers. Yeah. You know, like, does he have anything out uh, in terms of what his next, like live action film is no i'm i'm pretty sure he takes it one at a time i'm pretty gotcha. sure he's on uh isle of dogs until you that's know. out i think yeah. that's the way to go especially in a world where kind of like you said you're just like pounding out marvel movies and now mm. it's gonna be star wars world movies and all kinds of things just feel like they're just being made to be made, it's refreshing as fuck to have totally. a guy like him really care about every project he produces and make it, you know, all consuming while it's happening. And no one else can make his movies, you know? I, exactly. He's he's alone in this weird subset. Not everyone likes it. I know a lot of people uh, think he's pretentious or, or just don't like connect with his films or whatever. But like, yeah, he's the only person out there churning out these. And his films are a lot cheaper than a lot of the movies that get made now. We've kind of fallen into a space where there was, I forget the amount, but there's like a calculation that was done that if movies spend X amount of money, that they can see generally X amount of return mm, mm-hmm. if they create a blockbuster. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and now studios just try to spend, instead of, you know, we used to get tons of movies per year. Now we just get one of those. I mean, luckily right. we have Netflix and stuff that is like picking up the slack a well, bit. That, for sure. I mean, I, I've uh, spoken about the, or spoken to this on the show before just because I think it's a really interesting thing to consider that filmmaking has kind of become uh, blockbusters and low budgets and not too mm-hmm. much in between. And TV kind of took all of yeah. that middle part. And people who would be making like mid range uh, films, maybe like original stories with slightly larger budgets, are probably all making TV. <laughs> totally. I would 100% agree with that. Yeah. In fact, the things that I'm most excited about generally happen in, in TV right yeah, now. Yeah, it's, I get more excited by indie movie projects and TV than I typically do about uh, blockbuster movies. Absolutely. Uh, which... a, a little bit of that is that like the type of movie a blockbuster wants to do doesn't excite me, but sometimes those things do. I mean, like I, like I was saying earlier, I'm a huge T2 fan, sure. um, but I think there was a, we've reached this like technological height and budgets are being thrown around so large that like I think it has sucked the creativity out of the movie in mm. a little way where you think creativity works like uh, if I have all the resources I could do whatever I want because I'm a genius but really it's those problems you know like Jaws is great because Jaws didn't work you know they couldn't get the shark to look cool so they didn't show the shark a lot and the shark became super suspenseful that's you know, really it's, funny it, it's they, they have too many options so they can't do of anything course. creative i just watched um legion um which already was a pretty trippy and different but like that was like a marvel made um thing with a lot of effects and they made that so cool i've heard it's great yeah it yeah. was it definitely felt different and i've I, heard it's really good a lot of that was the approach it wasn't just the money or sure. anything but they definitely were working with less than a marvel movie would have at least per episode and they 
it is so much more stunning to look at. But that's a really good point too. That if you do have a good approach, then if, you know the money shouldn't really uh, be too much of an object. More so than like, okay, you have no limits, go. Sure, yeah. <laughs> well, have you ever like someone said write a sketch, and then you're like, oh, ah, uh, ooh. ooh, and then it's someone the worst. <laughs> someone says like, oh, I'm doing the show. It's like uh, about um the cats, right? Uh, could you write a sketch about cats? And then your first thoughts like, I'm not gonna write a sketch about cats that's stupid right and then you know, you take a second away from that and you're like oh well you could do this and you could do that because somehow closing those doors you absolutely know, just like lets all the synapses go off absolutely and I think I- it's the same thing with problems and going back to Wes Anderson's aesthetic like we were talking about this earlier he circumvented a lot of modern stuff for things that technically are cheaper but no one wants to do them anymore and then he did them and that's what we love about him <laughs> that's so funny it's also so interesting to think about when you consider the aesthetic of his films and the caliber of the actors he get. He gets on paper, it seems like he would be making more expensive movies. But when you compare a Wes Anderson film to going back to literally any Marvel movie, oh, yeah, or anything that has big action sequences or anything. I mean, basically every blockbuster now, like right. w- they're they're just with the exception of maybe blockbuster comedy films, which are kind of dying out because of the nature of uh, TV comedy mm-hmm. and and things like that, and they're just not as uh, world market marketable as action films are. So. Uh, studios are less apt to spend a bunch of money on them because they can't sell them to people in other countries because comedy doesn't translate as well as explosions do. Um, (laughs) We were just at a film festival with a web series that we we brought and someone like... It's like that's pretty good, but you should think about not doing comedies because uh, comedies. Do- and then gave us like that same spiel. Yeah, think about walking into a room and pitching any one of Wes Anderson movies. You know, like yeah. I want money that's to do. Really funny. It's about a kid who like he like starts a lot of clubs, but he's not very you know good at school, and he falls in love with his teacher, and she's not that into it. Also, <laughs> it's kind of a comedy. So funny. Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, like on paper it shouldn't work at all, or or if yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then it's like, oh, is it going to be like super fast, and everyone's going to be making jokes and something? No, it's going to be it's slow and meandering, pretty quirky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, so this is like super low budget. No, no, no. We want it to be Oscar worthy. Yeah, we need it to look great. <laughs> Money, please. That's really hilarious, and also kind of depressing because it probably means that a bunch of people who should be making movies aren't. But hopefully because of the accessibility, they still are. They're making movies even if they think they can't and they're getting better at it and they're failing and they're trying. Eventually they'll be uh, super famous filmmakers. Uh, So, okay, rapid fire. What's your, what what would you say your favorite Wes Anderson movie is? Uh, Live Aquatic. Okay. I think. Gun to my head. It'd be that one. Who's your favorite Wes Anderson actor? Ooh, or actress. Actor. Uh, uh, it's Jason Schwartzman. We wouldn't have him without him. Okay. You know, he would still be in Phantom Planet or something. <laughs> God, I always forget that. 
Uh, yeah, I remember watching. Uh, did you ever watch Bored to Death? I love Bored to Death. So fucking good. We could talk about that. So on the next. So time good. <laughs> Maybe my favorite uh, opening credits to any show. Oh, was it's the Bored amazing. to Death credits with his song over it and everything. Uh, I've never seen a show that like. Maybe, Parks and Rec, maybe, but like that show, everyone who I've ever showed it to, first episode, they're like, I don't like this. And then when they get like four episodes in, they're so in love with that like friendship dynamic yeah. they have that no one can stop watching I it. Never, I never had an opinion on Ted Danson until I saw that show. Oh, and me now too. I fucking love Ted Danson. <laughs> He's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's incre- It's ridiculous that that show has Zach Galifianakis on it, and I don't think he's the best part of the show. Oh, it's no. not because it's his fault. It's just because the show is so good, and Ted Zan- Danson is so scene-stealing yes. that somehow even Zach Galifianakis doesn't manage to like steal the show. How I want like some kind of uh, whimsical uh, advice uh, peddling like <laughs> yeah. male figure in my life, you know, like yeah. I just I just want like an old dude with white hair to be like, oh, you'll figure it out, yeah. like with a martini. Right. Uh, I'd love that. Yeah, and uh, preferably I'd prefer it be Ted Danson. Oh well, I mean, best case scenario is Ted Danson. Uh, uh, okay, who does? Okay, who's your favorite? Uh, Will Wes Anderson character? Mm. Klaus is definitely up there uh, for my Aquatic. Like it's that. probably Klaus. Okay. I mean, I feel like associated to Max Fisher, but I see right. the problems. Yeah, I have the same problems, and they are vast. Klaus, I, though, he just wants to be—he just wants to be accepted, you know. And I almost—that uh, was why I hesitated with the question because I was like, I mean, it's probably Max Fisher, but I like that I asked uh, anyway. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> if if someone says they're like something, and then that's their favorite. They're probably that weird. That makes you look like a weirdo. Yeah, they're probably like, <laughs> they need to take a look at themselves. That's a really, really good point. That's a super good point. I uh, hope I didn't like, like looking back on these podcasts, I hope a bunch of people didn't fall no, into no, that no, category. No, no, no. Uh, I, no, I think that's an apt description. And anyone listening, if they feel that way, maybe they'll have to do some soul searching. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see, what are some other, do you have like a favorite scene or a favorite shot, favorite moment, something like that? Ooh, of everything. I have a favorite line. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know why it's so stuck in my head, but it's, uh, you tell that stu- you tell that stupid Mick he just made my list of things to do today from Rushmore. <laughs> it's, yep. Yeah, that's such a good lie because it's like he doesn't know how to be tough, but he's seen it in a movie once. Yeah. So he has like such a sweet line prepared. That's so true. Uh, yeah, because it's not intimidating at all. No, but it's, <laughs> it's everything. Um, uh, yeah, I'm that or a lot of my favorite things with him, and he does it almost in everything. Is like he does like a training montage or like a, a montage, and his his choice of music is insane. It's uh, so whether it's like you know him and Max and Bill Murray working out in a steel mill, or uh, the the guys getting ready to Devo in Life Aquatic. Uh-huh. You know, like all those scenes are just so good to me. <laughs> so you reminded me of a question that I was going to ask earlier, but it's good for this rapid fire portion. Uh, what are some tropes that people associate with Wes Anderson? Not necessarily in a negative way, mm-hmm. but you know, you already referred to the fact that uh, yeah, that there's a dog killed in at least a couple of his films. That's a, a thing oh, he likes shit. doing. I didn't know. Yeah, that is a yeah, thing. Yeah, when you referenced it in 
Royal Tenenbaums, I had just thought about the fact that that happens in Moonrise Kingdom. So I like got, I kind of had a like, whoa, yeah, guy kills dogs. Yeah, yeah, he kills dogs. Uh, A lot of things are technically being read from stories or from a book, Mm -hmm. or at least two of them. Um, uh, uh, Framing, he's a center framer. A lot of things happen right in the middle and he shoots on a wide so you can get the environment even if he's doing a close on somebody. Oh, that's an interesting observation. So even with the person in the middle of the frame, he's still getting a lot of environment yeah, a lot of the time. I mean, not all the time. In certain films, he did it more or less. But yeah, like if he was to film us talking, uh, most of the time he would put the camera like where I'm sitting and make it super wide, have it really in your face. So you, right. have, it's technically a close up on you. It's only going to be like you know your uh, like stomach to head, but we will have the environment with you. Right. You may um, even get like these side walls in the yeah, shot, basically, yeah. That's which like, a lot of other people don't do. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Oh man, he uh, he used to. I don't know if he did in every film, but most films he slow mo's the last uh, shot. Oh, uh, and plays music for walking out. At huh. least the first ones, all of them have that. Uh, I don't know about. Mo- I can't remember if Moonrise Kingdom. Oh no, I think that one does. I don't know if Grand Budapest does. Of course, the uh, English Invasion soundtrack stuff is in oh, everything. Oh sure. Um, Mark's Mothersburg, I think, has worked as music on most everything, if not everything. Interesting. I wouldn't have realized that. Um, What else? Oh, uh, uh, characters don't wear clothes. They have costumes. They have, like, a uniform. (sighs) Uniforms. Yeah. Wow. Holy shit. I never would have put that together across the board. No, I guess I've only really strongly associated that with Life Aquatic, but it is everything. Yeah, a lot of times it's, it's... part of it like uh max fisher always wears the same outfit when because he's going to school and then when he switches you see like that weird like he's now wearing the other school's colors but it's just like outfit uh but yeah no um royal tenenbaums most of them people have their one outfit and it doesn't change until like they go through something like a character does like yeah richie never takes off the sunglasses until he shaves his head and tries to kill himself right yeah yeah tennis and the furs and you man yeah you really like obviously kind of blew my mind with that one i had just never considered it i mean even down to like fucking lobby boy everything Mm -hmm. every single movie has at least one person in some kind of uniform yeah and then you'll be shocked at the characters that aren't in uniform, like, and maybe are changing their look from time to time, yeah. are pretty much using either the same color palette or the same outfit style with different colors. I've totally noticed that aesthetic before, in the sense of he kind of like Destiny's Child's, his characters, and what I mean by that is um, Destiny's Child, uh, at, at the height of their popularity, would do this thing where they would all wear like kind of the same outfit, but change one thing oh, about yes, it. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. So like, maybe like one has a one shoulder shirt and one has like a tank top and stuff like that. I've been trying to advocate that with my friends for years <laughs> yeah. and no one wants to do it. Uh, you should pitch it to them as Destiny's Childing. That's and I think they the term might, now. They, they might be more on board. Yeah. But yeah. It sounds like a news station would be like, they call it Destiny's Childing <laughs> and teens are wearing the same outfit vaguely. <laughs> Uh, man, uniforms, such a good one. I would not have, I'm so glad I asked because now I'm like only ever gonna, you know, look for that as a, as a through line. Um, any others that you'd feel remiss to leave out? We talked about a lot of his, um, camera choices, you know, like him doing pans that Mm -hmm. like no one else wants to do anymore, but, um, 
Darjeeling Limited has the uh, there's like a door frame, a very because it's supposed to be in like a very tight train cabin mm-hmm. for the whole thing. There's that very narrow doorway. Then there is an internal window, and then same exact size on the other side of it is a mirror. Oh, and he does a lot of shots that are just he, the editing comes from people being in one of the three uh, quadrants mm-hmm. that he's basically set up mm-hmm. and people can be deeper or whatnot. And he he somehow turns the staging to that one shot with that staging into a full scene. Yeah. And it's, it you never, I mean, maybe he'll pan the camera once and then come back to that setup. But like, it's crazy how many scenes of that movie are like that and it totally plays. Yeah. And you really think about it. So he has that locked before he, you know, yeah. even builds the set. He knows what he wants. Uh, are there any real through lines to the dialogue? I feel like we've discussed the fact that thematically a lot of things are similar and that people aren't always talking, but I guess there has to be, you know, something to make it feel like a Wes Anderson movie aside from just the way it looks. Yeah, it's so hard to pinpoint what's up about the way people talk, because we all know it's not natural. Right. You know, it's not 100% natural. And some right. people play it up a little nat- more natural. Gene Hackman, mm-hmm. when he was in there, like, he was saying the same type of lines everybody else was, but he was like, not quite as I'm fucking Gene Hackman stylized. and it's working. Yeah. But everyone else was a little more stylized with That's it. a really good point. Um, and I've never been able to, like, really figure out what that difference is. But characters definitely don't. Uh, mix words like there's not a lot of rambling mm-hmm. you know Pe- and which is weird weird for comedy comedy usually has like extra lines thrown in to set right. up extra punchlines to pay them off right. characters are really kind of speaking uh not a lot and directly what they mean hmm. uh, that is a really good way to put it it's succinct and and no subtext which is funny because you referred to subtext earlier but that was i agree with you more about underlying themes versus i guess the subtext becomes you have to discern that a character saying what they mean isn't always the truth of that character sure you see what i'm saying yeah but yeah he's just so uh, because you're right there is a definitely a sense of I am speaking to you directly, even when it was little kids. And that was yeah. one of the things that makes that movie so funny is that it's these two little kids like totally falling in love, you know? Yeah. And or like with Rushmore, like Max Fisher would just say things like, hmm, take dictation. Yes. You know, and right. like it would just go into it. And that's just like comedy from a place of, look at this little kid. Right. <laughs> Taking control. Yeah. But the the adults do it too. And it's right. very, uh, someone wrote an essay, or maybe they it was a video essay that I watched, but was basically saying that in Darjeeling Limited, uh, they were speaking as though they had like a text conversation where things weren't catching up to each other. Like, um, <laughs> that's interesting. And, Everyone's so wrapped up in their own point of view and what they're thinking about. Right. Like, I think one of the bigger situations was, like, someone accused someone of something, and then someone jumped in and was like, hey, do you guys want to read my story? And then, like, the conversation Becomes went to a new that. point, and everyone is basically, and then catching up to the other person's thing. And, and coming back like, to Like, oh, and when you said that, fuck you for that. And then- It's really funny. Yeah. Because that's real. That's sure. the flow of conversation. It doesn't always, it's not always a straight line. Sometimes you do have to circle back. Especially with people you, like when they were, that was a family. Some people that right. you're that intimate left were like, 
people are just kind of assuming they know what you mean. Right. You know, it's like so much, you're, you're so close that it's it's almost made it harder to have a conversation. Yes, right. Yeah. That's really astute. Uh, well, I'm glad I got there too because I think you spoke to relatively early on that even if you stripped away a bunch of things, it would still feel like a Wes Anderson movie. But I do think that if you got a script, it would also feel like a Wes Anderson movie. Oh, like yeah. You don't need the aesthetic for it to have that element to it. And I, I do think you got at some of those things about him, too. Absolutely. Has he written all of his movies? Uh, yes. Yeah, he's written everything that he's worked on. He's collaborated with some people um, throughout it. And I think he might have co-wrote one film he didn't make. Oh. uh, The Squid and the Whale, he might have. Oh, interesting. He at least co-wrote Darjeeling with that guy. Noah Baumbach? Yeah. And he has something to do with The Squid and the Whale that I forget about. That makes a lot of sense. I can see a connection between them as like filmmakers and writers. Have you seen the Mike Mills films beginners or 20th century women i feel like i know what beginners is beginners has ewan mcgregor in it it's about him finding out that his dad his dad comes out very late in life yes i think that mike mills is one of the first filmmakers i've seen to kind of take some influences from wes anderson and kind of turn them into his own aesthetic he has a very uh, 20th century women really solidified this for me, and I would strongly suggest you check that out if, if you remember beginners and, and enjoying it. Oh, I really remember I enjoying it because I hated the cover, <laughs> and Brittany put it on, and I thought we were going to watch like this horrible romantic comedy, right. and it was like I was just hooked. It's beautiful. I really think he. It also made me rethink you, McGregor. Yeah, I didn't know I had an opinion about him. But I was like, I was like, yeah, Obi Wan Kenobi, really, right? Uh, but uh, he's a wonderful actor. Yeah, he's great in it. it. It's and he was in Train Spot. Like he was, yeah. he is a good actor. I don't know why I decided he wasn't because it's of because of the prequels. prequels. <laughs> they, they soured. Yeah, I mean, even Liam Neeson had to come back from those. You know, right? Uh, he had to murder all of Europe. <laughs> when I saw 20th Century Women, I caught up with recently. It came out last year. It's got like Annette Bening, Elle Fanning. Oh wow. Greta Gerwig, the cast is fantastic, and it accomplishes some similar things that Beginners does in that it presents characters in a really specific way, and it shows you kind of little bits and pieces of their backstory, so that kind of in the same way that you gave an example of the flashback to New York uh, for in Darjeeling Limited set up all these things about these characters and Royal Tenenbaums you see scenes from the characters lives as kids I think he does things like that when he introduces people and shows vignettes and pictures in a way that not that many filmmakers really do mm. the only other one I can think of who does it consistently is Wes Anderson Right. so the analogy is natural even if it's not necessarily one to one and I love it. Sweet. I think it's so good. Like, I just, I appreciate a whole character being presented to me. And then, you know, because of the way that they're presented, you kind of are able to understand so much more about yeah. the character interactions later on. I'm so, I'm so glad you said that. That's like the thing that I've been like, 
the most upset about and like the stuff that I've been making. Not that like anyone has necessarily seen that they were talking <laughs> listening to this podcast, but it's just like I, I make like a comedy short. Mm-hmm. So like I have like five minutes and I'm essentially, you know, my job here is like how many jokes can I get across? Right. Like, how many strong jokes can I get across in this sure. time period? And everything has to be like, okay, you set up a character that you cannot get like too deep with. And like even when we're like having meetings like and we're trying to talk about it and be collaborative, people are like, Well, what's like that person saying here? I'm like, stop thinking about that immediately because That's we don't really have time funny. for that. We That's... can't put that in. And I would love to do something that you actually could take that, go back, show a character's life, or just just set them up in a way that you feel like you know them. Uh but yeah, I, don't know. I'm I just also venting. no, no. I I think that's cool. I think you know that'll tie in with where we land here too. But I also think going back to kind of the transition of comedy from being really popular in filmmaking more now to being much stronger in the medium of television, I think that's a large part of it. I think that with television, you can set up so much backstory. In the first season and early second season of Parks and Rec, you're getting to know who all the characters are in a way that once they've established it, you can pull off this fucking hilarious thing that Jerry does. And because you know Jerry is the like office laughingstock, it gives so much more clarity out to the lines and the interactions and and the pairings of characters. You know that these two people have these very specific energies and you can just throw them together and like that's what makes comedy easier to produce is when you have a character to put it on top of and that's a lot harder to set up in filmmaking. And the flip of that, let's say it's like the first two episodes and you're like, oh, we have to fit in all these jokes we don't have time to set up these characters. It's like, well, the, the actor's going to act the way that we're telling them to act and that they're doing, and it's eventually going to come out. Like, if this character just seems a little flat for these first few episodes, we have time to work with them later. It's more important to, like, you know, tell the story we're telling right now, and we can set up that character later than That's really So I think you're really on to something there. And there's probably so much to that as well, especially in thinking about Parks and Rec. It's like, think about how much they started writing towards... Retta and towards Aziz Ansari and really bringing in things that these people actually did in their lives. Like they made one of Donna's storylines was that she would like live tweet movies, which is something that Retta did all the time. And like Tom Haverford became a huge foodie because Aziz was like it was working with um, Nick Offerman. They just found out he did it and did that. Exactly. So and that shows super interesting. First off, it's like probably the masterclass in like. We made people that everyone fell in love with. Yes. You know, like whether or not you argue it's not the funniest thing, like it is always going to be the one that like you want to feel comfortable (laughs) before you go to sleep. Yes. You can put that on and you'll feel wonderful. I was a big snob about Parks and Rec uh, the first season. I was like, this show is horrible and it's going to go nowhere. Uh, And I was very wrong. I loved it. Aren't you glad you were wrong? I am glad I was wrong. (laughs) Uh, It's weird because like aesthetically, uh, I was like, I I hate the the faux doc Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I felt like they didn't know whether or not they wanted to make Leslie Nope likable or Michael Scott from The Office yeah, for the first didn't. five episodes. Uh, but yeah, I'm so glad they nailed it because then yeah, they nailed it. That, and they got rid of that guy who I yeah, felt weird about. Mark um, Brandana quits. Yeah, uh, they just didn't know where <laughs> they wanted to place him. No, it was like he they were trying to make him the like entree into the world and uh-huh. it, it didn't really work. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. they were trying to recopy The Office formula and they were like, mm-hmm. you know what, Jim. Yes. But the scary thing about Jim is when Jim's not 
charming whoever Jim was played by? Jim is John Krasinski. John Krasinski. Jim's a dick. Total asshole. <laughs> so yeah. they gave the Jim role to someone else, and it was like, oh, this is not coming it didn't out really great. Work. Yeah. Oh shit. I truly, whenever I remind people that the first episode of season two is where Leslie marries the gay penguins at the zoo. Yes. The, and it's like, oh, you mean so the f- episode or season two straight out the gate was like what the show became. I right. think. No, I agree with that. So like they figured it out within that break. And I think there's some great stuff in the last couple of episodes of the first season, even though I would agree that they don't totally figure it out until the second, and it is a lot of that, like, figuring out where the characters land and that, like, what are the actors bringing to it and responding to that. Yeah, and and then realizing that their real strength lied in, like, we're going to make a community. Yeah. Like, the show that they were sort of basing themselves off of never did that. No. It was always, like, this antagonist other thing, and it was great, it was very funny, but, like, what made Parks and Rec, like, I think the one that's going to like take the, the, you know, history is going to remember it more fondly is that they were like, you know, we haven't done in like since cheers on TV, just have a bunch of people love each other, like each other. And especially in a world where, you know, the popular shows before that were always sunny in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. 30 rock, 30 rock uh, is a good one where no one really like actually liked each other until, you know, the finale. They, they all did, but they, like, you know, 30 rock was a joke machine. It was yeah. like, we, th- That's we're, a good they point. weren't making the characters bond. Yeah. Or, or no one was growing as a character by the end of the episode. Yeah. Even if people did didn't uh, necessarily dislike each other actively. It wasn't a goal of the show to have like us against the world kind of feel to it. Right. Yeah. But even, you know, Always Sunny is mean spirited. It's hilarious. Oh, yeah. yeah. But it's mean. I was watching it before I came in. (laughs) (laughs) And it just feels so different. Yeah. It's like you said, it's it's not something you, in my mind, would always turn to to go to sleep at night and feel okay. Totally. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely don't want to watch that before bed. <laughs> I just the episode like, I just oh saw. God, I must have asshole. never seen before, but it was like Danny DeVito was already he had tried to hang himself, and he was already just hanging there <laughs> when they walk into a room. But they were saying his neck was so thick it uh, wasn't going to kill I him. I think I have seen that. It's, Good a, it's Lord. a horrifying visual. Good Lord. Yeah, uh, I mean they're total idiots, and it's hilarious. But it's not Parks and Rec. Oh, uh, no. Anyway, that is somehow uh, turned into an excuse for me to uh, talk more about how much I love Parks and Rec. But I uh, think I think this should just be what the podcast becomes. <laughs> you rewatch Parks and Rec. I definitely talk about every episode. <laughs> I've wanted to do that with Murder She Wrote for years. <laughs> That's got to be so much TV. It's a lot of TV. Uh, and the amount of people that die in this like really small town I know is like astronomical. Right. right. Yeah. Eric and I do one of our favorite bits is to like find a hour long drama that went on for seven plus seasons on like a Netflix and just be like, hey, you want to start damages? <laughs> <laughs> just a fun bit. You can take it home, maybe. Maybe share that with your loved ones. Maybe yeah. you don't get a good laugh out of it. But yeah, I yeah, I gotta check out Mike Mills's other uh, 20th okay. Century Women or anyone 20th with, Century Women within the sound of my voice who likes Wes Anderson. And I think that beginners and 20th Century Women would like go along with the things that they're not nearly as stylized or framed. But I think he's making a clear like. Uh, name for himself in making movies like this. He also awesome. has a, a movie called Thumbsucker, which I've heard is oh uh, yeah, I've seen Thumbsucker. Yes, I, I have. I get it really confused with um submarine. 
Oh, because of the because t- of the cover. But yeah, yeah. I saw I saw Thumbsucker. Yeah, that's his first film. I believe. Or at least so, I watched yes. that a long time ago. Yes. Yeah, it's really it's good. much older. Uh, yeah, but that's him too. Um, so I, I think I totally get what you you mean with the relation there. I also see a correlation to. Um, Who's the guy did you know? Jason Reitman. Reitman, not Bateman. Yeah, but I can totally see that connection because he does have a pretty specific, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Up in the air, Juno. Totally. I'm trying to think of another one of his films. Did he do Young Adult? Yes, he also did Young Adult, and Diablo Cody was also the writer for that one. So... Yeah, I can definitely see yeah. kind of a, a through line of aesthetic for all those. I really like all of his but also, movies. I'm too. kind of only connecting Thumbsucker because uh, I don't. I didn't feel. Um, oh, I just blanked on the name. The Ewan McGregor movie, um, Damages. No, Beginners. beginners sorry, <laughs> going back uh, to my weird bit. That's really funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't feel like that was so much like the, the you know uh, Jason Jason's work, but oh. But you can see Thumbsucker being Thumb, Thumbsucker kind of... Thumbsucker I thought was him for oh, years until we had kind of this conversation. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Okay, I can definitely see, especially when I think of like, uh, did you ever see Men, Women, and Children? That was like kind of the most recent Jason Reitman movie. No. Uh, a lot of people missed it. It has some good stuff in it. Yeah. I would definitely uh, recommend it as well. It's Adam Sandler, Jennifer Garner. Like, Whoa. the cast was... Uh, and it just disappeared? Uh, it was kind of poorly reviewed. Mm-hmm. And I can see why. It doesn't all totally work, but it's got enough good stuff in it that I would still recommend people see it. Yikes, yeah, it just made no money. So box office-wise, it was probably a total flop. But uh, I don't know. I think it's still worth seeing, especially if you're a fan of Reitman's other stuff to begin with. Definitely. Yeah. How do you feel like your love of Wes Anderson and his films has influenced you creatively? And if you can speak to it, your life in general is a bigger picture. Well, like outside of uh, directly ripping them off, which I've done a <laughs> lot, uh, you know, in, in almost everything, he was one of the first people that uh, turned me on to something that is like a a through line philosophy in a lot of the stuff that I work on. Which, like, for the longest time, I couldn't think of uh, a way to tell a story outside of like I'll have two people have a conversation and character. X will be funny and character X will be like, well, what do you mean? That's really uh, funny. And there's so many other things he does to make a joke happen that I was able to pick up on because, uh, you know, it just, you're, you're laughing and no one's even speaking. And, and uh, the biggest one is comedy through composition. Like, how can you just set up in almost like a like you know geometry what's happening in the scene I to to- be funny? Yes. I totally remember specific takes. Uh, or cuts in Street Wizards Apprentice that are like that. Oh, thanks. Like reveals yes. that are like, oh shit, that's hilarious. Like when you first see his house and things like that, the wizard's house yeah, yeah, where yeah, he yeah, lives. Yeah. That's that's an example of like the reveal or the turn is is a joke in and of itself. And and especially that gag has the Wes Anderson like, well, it's just gonna pan over to where the thing is. Yes, you know? like, exactly. That's yeah. what I'm thinking of. Man, that's yeah. great. Oh, and um, in the next episode, there's a sequence uh, 
that is a direct ripoff. Like, if you just think of that, and we already talked about Royal Tenenbaums where they're going through the house. Like, uh-huh. I used I used drums the way he used drums. It's like one shot in the pan the way he did it. Like, I wanted it to feel like that scene. And I didn't realize it until, like, I was editing. I was like, what does this remind me of? It's not like it's a conscious thing where you're like, he's just so ingrained into what I like That's about cool, film that though. I just do it. Edgar Wright is the same way. Sure. I, I whip pan whenever I think about cutting. I'm just like, we should whip pan there, right? That's so great. And then great. Drew's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's really awesome that you can draw such specific and that it something that you're not necessarily doing consciously. I think that's great. I think that's how we should be using uh, things that we watch. Yeah. As creatives, I think they should be, you know, not necessarily directly like stealing jokes or lines or whatever, obviously. And I'm not saying that's something you were doing, but, you know, just to clarify where I'm coming from. Uh, And sometimes that does happen where you subconsciously you know, internalize something and don't realize that it's something that you've seen somewhere else and it does come out in a way that's like, wait, did that get stolen? But I also think there's something to be said for a different filmmaker or actor's interpretation of a stylistic choice they've seen in the past. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Tarantino, I think, is, like, super vocal about the fact that he just, like, regurgitates out stuff that he's seen in other movies. Right. So he like, sat around all day his whole life, watched movies, and then made other things that, like, are similar, but, you know, and you can find the connective tissues. Right. But I think it's super important in a collaborative medium to both have stuff that everybody knows that they like that you can reference back to. So when you're sitting around trying to come up with something together, you can be like, well, we know we like that and point to it. But also, like... To know it yourself that you're doing it, even when it's on a subconscious level, like uh, we did something the other day where I couldn't explain why I thought this thing had to be one shot and we had to uh, make it happen in one instead of like editing. And then I remembered it's like, oh, because like I'm basically ripping off of Buster Keaton because like with the gag here is like we're doing something that someone physically shouldn't be able to do. So if we cut away from it, everyone would feel like because uh, that was hat guys all shtick. So sure. like but, but admitting that to yourself, I was able to say that to the mm-hmm. people we was working with and they were like, oh, OK, that's why we're wasting all this time trying to make this happen that's in one shot. Oh, so funny. Yeah, that's great that even among a collaborative group, you can say like. It, you know, we spoke to that earlier that I feel like there has to be a shorthand between Wes Anderson and a lot of his actors at this point. It's an amazing, you know, way to kind of draw comparison to that with the people that you work with. It's just like, oh, this is a Buster Keaton thing, you know? It's, right, right, uh, right. You can't do this because of this. Right, right, right. And then you just move on. You don't spend like 10 minutes Another talking hour, about it. Another hour, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's really cool. I am so glad we got to chat about this. It yeah. makes me just want to like marathon all of his movies, even though I'm pretty sure I've seen everything. <laughs> you can see it again. I Nothing think, like a good rewatch. I think the least familiar with something I am is Life Aquatic. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Oh, you That's should rewatch your it. Favorite. <laughs> yeah, you should rewatch it. It's great. I think there would be things for me to discover about all of his movies. Yeah, for th- sure. His movies are like um, a good pizza. It's like weirdly better the next day. You know, like after you've already kind of know what it's like. Wes Anderson, a good pizza. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. I love you, Melzer, and I mean that. Oh, ditto. Baby, how you feeling? 
This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.